Hi, everyone, and welcome to the HR Works Podcast, brought to you by HR Daily Advisor. I'm your host, Josh Zygmunt, Content Director for Simplify Media. The HR Works Podcast provides clear, relevant, and actionable information on topics that matter to you, the HR professional. When you're armed with the best practices and strategies to attract, retain, and engage top talent and deliver exceptional service to your organization, HR just works. On today's episode, we're joined by Paige Hoster-Good, attorney and shareholder with McAfee Taft, Oklahoma's largest law firm and one of the top 250 firms in the United States. Paige is a trial attorney who has been representing employers in all phases of labor and employment law since 2013, and she is clearly a rising star in the industry. Paige's achievements have earned her inclusion on the list of the best lawyers in America in the category of employment law, and she has also been included on the Oklahoma Super Lawyers list of Oklahoma rising stars. Paige's counseling practice encompasses a broad range of employment-related issues including training employees, managers, and supervisors on implementing policies and best practices for anti-discrimination, anti-harassment, and anti-retaliation. She's a frequent guest speaker on issues affecting the workplace and has been a contributing author to numerous business and professional publications. And her recent article, What to Expect from the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, When You're Expecting, was just recently released on the HR Daily Advisor. So with PWFA having just gone into effect at the end of June 2023, There's a lot for employers and their HR teams to unpack and familiarize themselves with to remain compliant and up to speed with the latest rules and regulations. So I thought, who better than to take a closer look at the PWFA than Paige herself? So let's get her introduced. Paige, welcome to the HR Works Podcast, and thanks for coming on. Josh, thank you for having me. And you made me sound really good just then with all that bio intro. (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure to have you on, Paige. We're just scratching the surface, and I definitely want to get you introduced to our audience. So why don't we get you started there? Tell us a bit about yourself. What type of practice do you have and what legal services do you provide? So you are spot on. I work in Oklahoma City. I work at McAfee and Taft. I do labor and employment law. I've been practicing since 2013. So I'm coming up on 10 years of being a practicing attorney. And really, I work with employers both on the front end of things, so prevention, training, compliance with the laws, and then also on the back end, if they get sued, I defend them in court. If a government agency comes to audit or inspect them, I help them through that. So my practice is a nice blend of transactional and litigation work, so I work with HR professionals primarily, but, you know, also business leaders. And we do everything from policies and agreements and offer letters and reviewing handbooks and handling all of those day-to-day calls where they're confused about how to handle a personnel issue. And then on the litigation side of things, you know, uh, walking them through that process, guiding them through what can be kind of a scary moment in time um, and making sure that they get good results in court. So yeah, that's a little bit about my practice and and I, I love doing it. I love working with employers. I love trying to help them get it right. And that's what I think everybody's trying to do. That's fantastic. Thanks for sharing that to get us introduced there, Paige. And again, congrats on the 10 years that I'm sure have gone by so fast. And as you just shared there, I mean, there's no shortage of diversity and uniqueness to what you work on. So very exciting to start off. But I've got to know, what led you as you were pursuing your legal career to focus on employment law and labor law? What was that aha moment or that spark moment? Yeah, well, so first I was drawn to the practice of law in general because 
it sort of affords you the ability to be a lifelong learner. And it also, like no day is the same. Um, every day looks a little bit different for me. Like sometimes I've got back-to-back -back calls with clients and we're working through issues. Some days I'm sitting down with people and training supervisors. Other days I'm in a suit and I'm in court arguing against, you know, opposing counsel's ridiculous motion. Um, and there's always a challenge because you're constantly keeping up with ever evolving laws, ever evolving regulations, different administrations that interpret things differently. So it really gives someone the opportunity to continue to learn and be challenged throughout their practice, which, you know, is something that drew me in initially. And then from there, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, so I went to a full service law firm for an internship and tried a little bit of everything and was instantly drawn to labor and employment because we t are able to tell the best stories at cocktail parties. Um, oh, I'm sure. We just, <laughs> you know, we, it's the human side of business. So we end up with some of the most interesting fact patterns. There's people out there who do some weird things. <laughs> um, so I was kind of drawn to that aspect of employment law, but ultimately, you know, it's all about helping people. I think almost any lawyer out there is like, I got into this profession to help people. And so I get to do that. It's just through the lens of a labor and employment law practice. People are the central theme. That is one thing yeah. I, I always ask that question to start off these interviews. What's the spark? What got you in? whether it's into HR or getting into employment law. And it's always people at the core and building careers that are built around helping people in various aspects. So I always like finding that central thread there. Paige, mm -hmm. that's great. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned being a lifelong learner. I think that this is a great segue into what we're covering today with the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. We're learning so much about this newly enacted law that's now gone into effect. So let's start there. Can you help explain the basics of the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act? When did the law officially go into effect? What are some of those key highlights that employers and our audience of HR professionals need to be thinking about going forward? Yeah. So the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, and for simplicity throughout our podcast today, I'm gonna I might refer to it as the PWFA. Oh, I'll be following your lead, not to worry. Okay. So the PWFA, it went into effect on June 27, 2023. At the time it went into effect it didn't have any implementing regulations to go with it. So that's always a little bit of a, you know, people get a little bit confused when there's this body of law, but the regulations that really explain what that law means aren't there at the same time. Well, the EEOC, which is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, they proposed regulations to the PWFA and published those in the Federal Register on August 11, 2023. So we're in this period of time right now where the public can comment on those proposed rules and let the EEOC know whether they have any disagreements or feedback about those rules. I think the public has until October 10, 2023 to do so. And then after that comment period closes, then we will expect to see final regulations, um, most likely by the end of the year of 2023 would be my best guess. But back to your question about what, what is the basic thing that the PDF, PWFA is about? 
it requires covered entities to provide reasonable accommodations to qualified employees and applicants and any known limitations they have that are related to pregnancy, childbirth, or related medical conditions. Again, a covered entity still has that undue hardship exception, but basically we're looking at providing reasonable accommodations to workers so that they can stay in their jobs even when they're pregnant or dealing with pregnancy-related conditions. Yeah, that's a great breakdown to start. So what did accommodations look like for pregnant workers prior to Congress passing the PWFA back in December? Yeah. So before that, you know, we had the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, and that was an act that amended Title VII. And as most of our listeners probably know, Title VII is that body of law that covers discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. So the PDA, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, we're going to use lots of acronyms today. Uh, The Pregnancy Discrimination Act made it clear to everyone that discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, childbirth, and those related conditions is also prohibited. Essentially, that law made it so employers knew you can't treat people differently or unfavorably with respect to any aspect of their employment because of their pregnancy. And those terms and conditions of employment being, you know, hiring, firing, pay, demotions, things like that. So the prior guidance under the Pregnancy Discrimination Act was basically if you had employees who were temporarily unable to perform their jobs due to pregnancy in those conditions, they would need to be treated the same for employment purposes as other persons with similar inabilities to work. The most common example that we would see were individuals with light duty restrictions. So basically, if a pregnant person had those issues, they would be compared to someone who had the ability to get light duty, and the pregnant person would need to have that opportunity as well. But, you know, it was a little bit problematic because if they didn't have someone to point to that was in a comparable position that had similar ability or inability to perform the job, then they may not have a similarly situated individual, and therefore there may not be an accommodation available to them. Sure, defining light duty became a challenge. Right. And then the other part of this is, you know, basically, if you had a normal pregnancy, there weren't many options for you. If you had an abnormal pregnancy and it rose to the level of being a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act, then you could get an accommodation for your condition under the ADA. But if you had an otherwise healthy pregnancy, and just minor complications or minor issues that aren't rising to the level of a legal disability, then you're kind of left in this limbo. So I think that's what this administration was looking to do, was sort of close the gap between the PDA and the ADA and really give pregnant workers more protections when it comes to accommodations. Yeah, it seemed like this really addresses a lot of the shortcomings and just those missed classifications, those missed opportunities to cover pregnant workers in so many different ways that, again, the language of the PDA and ADA just didn't capture. Uh, So it's a really great way to broaden the gate a bit. Yeah, that's right. And I know we'll get into this a little bit more, but the biggest thing that I see is, again, that, that issue where 
you have a pregnant individual who is maybe just having some morning sickness, right? But it's not something that arises to the level of a disability. And so now the PWFA gives that person protections where they may have not had them in the past. That's great. So you mentioned reasonable accommodations. That's the word that really rings throughout so much of the language around the PWFA. So help us understand that reasonable accommodations piece a bit more. What are some examples of what constitutes as reasonable accommodations under the PWFA? So I will say that the term reasonable accommodation is kind of a term of art. And it basically comes down to something that an employer can offer that's not going to cause an undue hardship. I mean, at bottom, that's, that's kind of what it is. Right. Um, but the PWFA definitely gives some examples of what could be considered reasonable accommodations. The ones that they provide are like making existing facilities more accessible and usable for employees and applicants that have known limitations under the PWFA job restructuring, doing a part-time or modified work schedule, reassignment to a vacant position, breaks to use the restroom, drink, eat, or rest more often, Um, acquiring or modifying certain equipment or devices for the job, or getting a quick, like if somebody has a, a lifting restriction because of their pregnancy, getting a device that allows them to continue to lift the required weight amount, allowing people to use paid leave under various available paid leave programs that the employer has, providing additional amounts of unpaid leave, you know, allowing people to go and attend those healthcare appointments, those checkups, considering the pregnant person for light or modified duty, um, employer provided parking, you know, Those are some of the examples that the PWFA has provided as quote unquote reasonable accommodations. Again, all of that is considered on a case by case basis under the circumstances of the specific employer and with no undue hardship in play. Yeah. And a lot of what you just listed there for reasonable accommodations may already be getting done. Uh, That may just be commonplace and common practice. This is now just setting the standard setting the low bar and the requirement for all all employers to meet those standards of reasonable accommodation for their pregnant employees. I agree. So if I had received a client call about a pregnant individual asking for some simple accommodations in the workplace prior to the enactment of the PWFA, I would most likely have been advising that client to walk through a sort of interactive process and be looking with an eye toward getting them that reasonable accommodation, even without the PWFA being in place. But you're right, it is now something that's set in stone from the government that gives us a a floor of what employers should be doing. And I love that you mentioned the interactive process. And that brings me to my next question. What are those steps that employers should be taking now when an employee requests reasonable accommodation? So, As soon as the employer becomes aware that you have an individual who has a limitation that's related to, affected by, or arising out of pregnancy, childbirth, or those related medical conditions, then the employer needs to engage in the interactive process. 
Usually I recommend that that interactive process be conducted by human resources professionals that you have on staff. They're the ones who are trained and educated and have the expertise to, to carry these, um, to carry the process out in the right way. But I always refer to the interactive process as basically just like opening up that line of communication between the employer and the employee to try and clarify and figure out what are the limitations this person has? What do they need? What can we do to allow them to perform the functions of their job? Now, here's a very lawyer response to this. Every interactive process is going to look a little different. Sometimes they are so short and sweet and an employer can grant it right on the spot because it's something so simple and so cost minimal, right? Other times the process is going to be more complex. It's longer. We might need medical documentation um, to support it. But basically what you're doing with that process is gathering information and analyzing that information and reaching a conclusion about what reasonable accommodation can be provided absent undue hardship. Again, if we have a situation where an employer is going to be relying upon undue hardship as the basis for denying a requested accommodation, then the employer would need to be analyzing that issue as well, because there's some factors to consider there. Um, when it comes to an undue hardship analysis and employers will want to make sure that they've, they've done that assessment and know that we actually do have an undue hardship before denying someone's accommodation request. Yeah, that's great. So help me understand this one, Paige, what brings undue hardship into play? Like at what point does it go from being a reasonable accommodation to being something that could be defined as an undue hardship? Yeah. So The most simple answer is an undue hardship is when an accommodation would qualify as a significant difficulty or expense. And there are a number of factors to look at. So employers would be considering the nature and net cost of the accommodation that's needed, the overall financial resources of the facility that's involved you know, including like the number of persons at that facility, the effect on those expenses and resources, the overall financial resources of the covered entity that's involved, the size of the business, the type of operation that's being conducted, the composition of it, the geographic separateness of it, administrative and fiscal issues, and the impact that that accommodation could have to other employees and the workforce. So there's a lot to think through. um, And I always caution employers not to make that assessment too hastily because they really want to think through all of those factors before denying something on that basis. Yeah, thanks for breaking that down, Paige. Because again, I think that is such a important piece to look at is, again, what, what can be reasonably accommodated? What can you do that, that does qualify as reasonable accommodation? Uh, but as you said, there are so many factors coming to play there. And really not making too hasty of a decision is crucial, especially when handling such a new set of rules that are being now put into place with the PWFA. Now, you mentioned communication, and that brings us to the next point I want to look at. 
now look, I'm assuming anyone listening to the HR Works podcast should be very familiar with HR Daily Advisor, probably has read your great coverage. Again, that was what to expect from the Pregnancy Workers Fairness Act when you're expecting, which we put out on HR Daily Advisor, but there's tons of great coverage out there to get up to speed on the changing rules. But how do you communicate that to your workforce and really share the message to all employees so that everyone's aware of what the new rules and expectations are with the PWFA? So what are some tips for best communicating from the HR teams to employees? When any new employment law is passed, employers should be considering meeting with their legal counsel and their HR team and discussing whether they need to revise or implement any new policies and procedures. So I would say here, most employers likely already have policies that prohibit discrimination in the workplace. And if you don't, please call me because you need that. <laughs> um, and I would imagine that all of our listeners, you know, those anti-discrimination policies cover sex and pregnancy, but they may not have clear written policies regarding accommodations for pregnancy-related conditions. Um, oftentimes, you will see an accommodation policy for disability, and you'll see an accommodation policy for religion. Well, now, in my mind, the PWFA has set a new um, category, which is accommodations for pregnancy. And it's really, again, it's not the same as your ADA accommodation policy because it covers those individuals whose medical conditions do not rise to the level of a disability. So I think, you know, our HR professionals out there are in the best position to know what those policies and procedures that they have look like and whether they're going to need to update them or not. And HR also needs to be the point person for any questions regarding the PWFA and any requests related to the PWFA. Okay. Now, looking at PWFA, obviously, but just across the board, when any new regulations or standards are put into law, what are the obligations for employers and their HR teams in terms of communicating that information? What are those requirements? That's kind of what I was talking about with issuing a policy that would better explain to your workforce that you, this, you know, this company is covered by the PWFA and here's what that means. And if you have any questions about this, contact HR. And if you need accommodation for your pregnancy or related medical conditions, contact HR. So Got it. I, you know, I think that's the best approach for disseminating the information and making your HR professional kind of the gatekeeper for those issues. Yeah, that's being proactive too and just getting out in front. Again, knowing that this is being widely covered, it would be smart for HR teams to be proactive, get out in front, communicate with your employees. Um, now, again, we're talking PWFA here with Paige Hostergood, attorney and shareholder with McAfee Taft. Paige, what are some best practices for HR professionals that you could share? Any advice that you'd be willing to share with our audience out there? I think maybe one of the best pieces of advice that I could share is around documentation. Documentation is so key in employment law and in the HR profession, but also reminding everyone that every document could one day be an exhibit in court. 
<laughs> so basically being very mindful of what's reduced to writing and um and being consistent and accurate and and appropriate in what documentation looks like because you know on the front end of this we are basically memorializing an incident or a factual scenario or an investigation or whatever it may be on the back end of it i'm attaching it to a motion for the court to consider whether this claim should go forward to a jury or we're sending it back to the jury room for them to consider whether this employer engaged in discrimination or not so the importance of documentation but the importance of proper documentation is really key. And I, I don't think I could emphasize that enough with my clients. The other thing that comes up a lot is consistency and how important that is for employers and HR professionals. And basically any time that you're making big employment decisions, um, really being mindful of doing so in a consistent manner and thinking about prior precedent that you have set as a company, the decisions that you've made and whether those individuals are in similar roles with similar issues and, and is there a way to act in accordance with that here or do we have something that's different? I think as long as somebody is emphasizing consistency, then there's less discrepancies and there's less room for someone to say, well, that was because of my race or religion versus that was because of my performance or behavior. I love that. Thank you for that, Paige. Again, as somebody who is now in their 10th their year of practice with employment law, you've seen so much, as we said at the top. That's some great advice for our HR professionals to take away. Document, document, document is one of the best pieces of advice that, that I've heard time and time again in talking with HR professionals and asking that question of what's some of that advice that you've leaned on um, and can pay forward. Document, document, document was one that, that has always stuck with me. It's great to hear that one emphasized again. Uh, so thank you for sharing that with us, Paige. So again, we're here with Paige Hostergood, attorney and shareholder with McAfee Taft. Paige, thank you for breaking down the PWFA. I think that was crucial just to share the latest in what employers need to know as the law has now taken effect and is being really ironed out, as you mentioned, going up to October 10th as the cutoff for any feedback. Now, Paige, do you have anything you're excited about, anything that you've got going on that you want to share with our audience? And at the very least, please let us know where we can learn more, either to keep up with your content or to get in touch with McAfee and Taft. Well, um, I'm going to be putting out a garnishment webinar soon. Okay. So I actually just wrote an article about garnishments. I've had a number of clients that for some reason, I don't know if it's COVID or the lingering effects of COVID, or if people are not realizing that garnishments are as important as they think they are, but we've had enough clients come forward with some garnishment issues that I thought, you know what, we just need to go back to the basics and put some content out there reminding employers how garnishments work and what you need to do to make sure you don't get into trouble, which the consequences of not properly responding to garnishments can include the employer being on the hook for the entire sum of the underlying debt, which could be thousands of dollars. Wow. So anyways, that's my next project that I'm working on. 
I think that we're going to push that webinar out in sometime this fall, and that'll be available through our McAfee and Taft employer link, where we provide a lot of resources to our clients regarding labor and employment issues, trends, developments, and hope that everybody finds them useful. Well, that's fantastic. Definitely something to be excited about coming up. Now, where can our audience go to learn more? Our, our website, macbeandtap.com. Yeah. Perfect. Nice and easy. Well, thank you for that, Paige. Now, Paige, before we let you go, I've got one last question, and this is how we close out all of our interviews, all of our guest conversations on the HR Works podcast, and it's built around motivation. So when you wake up in the morning and your feet hit the floor, what's the one thing that gets you really motivated to start your day? Coffee. I love it. (laughs) A big, warm cup of hot coffee. I'm not one of those people that does an ice drink. I, I go for the hot drink, even when it's what are we at? Like 105 degrees outside right now here in Oklahoma City. Um, no, you know, I think honestly, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, which is, you know, I kind of get to be a student in my job. I get to be a lifelong student. And every day I'm presented with with problems, um, you know, like, and I, I get to do some research and analyze things and figure out the issues and help my clients make the right decisions that's going to put them in a position to have the least legal risk possible. Um, so it's it's like every day is, is a new challenge um, and you know just kind of having that diversity in my practice um, and in my day is, it, get you kind of motivated to get here and get some stuff done. Yeah, it's exciting to think about that in a cup of coffee uh, and you're ready to go. Look, Paige Hostergood, attorney and shareholder at McAfee Taft, thank you so much for joining this HR Works podcast. It was great connecting with you, learning more about the PWFA. Thank you again for your great article. Again, for our audience members out there who want to check that one out, it's what to expect from the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act when you're expecting. We'll put a link to that in our post for this episode, uh, but certainly I encourage checking that one out and keeping up with us and with Paige in the coverage of the PWFA as that unfolds over the next uh, next couple months. Uh, but Paige, again, thank you so much for your time, and we'll have to do this again soon. Thank you, Josh, again for having me. It was fun. Thank you for listening to the HR Works Podcast. Be sure to check out our new episodes every Tuesday. Follow us on all major streaming platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Audible.